0: PhDs at Work podcast session six. Hi everyone, welcome back. PhDs at Work, the podcast, Michelle Erickson here, and it has been a while. It's cold and flu season, which means if there is a virus going around, I am sure to catch it. I actually lost my voice for a few weeks there. It's slowly coming back. Uh, in fact, I, I still sound a little froggish on today's podcast, but hopefully you won't mind. You'll listen past that. Uh, that was a bad joke. I should totally edit that out. Uh, any case, I hope you'll overlook it since we're chatting with Hannah Griff Slevin and she is answering your questions, which is awesome, by the way. Thank you so much for sharing your questions and being active members of our network. This is what it's all about. Now, Hannah, as you'll recall from our Week in the Life series, is director of public programs at the Museum at Eldridge Street, a landmark synagogue in the heart of New York City's Chinatown. Hannah shares more about her career trajectory, her philosophy on the value of a PhD, and for those interested in learning more about the inner workings of a small museum, she shares some insight into the different roles and responsibilities of the staff there. Uh, If I had to sum up our conversation into one element, it would be the importance of flexibility. Have a listen and let me know what you think. Hi, Hannah. Welcome to the podcast. So glad to have you here. Good morning, Michelle. Good morning. We're starting bright and early this morning. I thought we would start this podcast with user questions straight off the bat. Does that sound okay? That sounds fine. All right. So our question number one. Here we go.
1: Hi, Hannah. My name is Alyssa, and I'm calling in from South Carolina. Thank you so much for your wonderful blog post. Um, The question I have for you today is, as somebody who is preparing to go into a Ph.D. program uh, and would ultimately like to end up uh, at a museum, hopefully curating, um, I'm wondering how you think earning a Ph.D., helped you overall with your career um, in public humanities
0: as well as in museums. Thank you. That's a super hot topic. Yes, it is. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, um, essentially, I would boil that question down to, is it worth it? Should I get a PhD? How did you hear that question?
1: Well, for me, I just heard it and thought, absolutely, you need a PhD. And Well, you don't need a PhD, but I think... It is a a great thing to have a Ph.D. if you're going to be a curator or any kind of public historian or someone in the public. And I'll tell you why. It's not that you you can learn a lot on the job, certainly. But for me, if you love a certain subject, I assume this woman loves American studies, which is all sorts of things. It's culture, it's folklore, it's sociology, it's history. And I think the more that you learn as you're taking your PhD and by that I mean you learn how to really um, research a problem uh, something very deeply and and present it in writing papers and to show that you've conquered the problem or or, um, or really have made something really significant. I think that's a really good thing. My um, problem now, or that's not, not even a problem, but when I go to some exhibits, I think, eh, that's all right, you know, but I, is am I learning anything new? I feel like a lot of shows that I see don't have a whole lot of depth. I feel like there's a lot of um, very surface information. And I understand you can't put it all on a little blurb in a museum, certainly. Um, and maybe that's the point. Maybe you have to gear it to a certain kind of audience. But I think as a curator, you should really be the one with all the facts in your head and have all this information in you and i think that i think that when you get a phd you learn how to get that kind of information and um and then hopefully if you're going into a public field you you'll be learning also how to translate it to what the public needs mm. that is a very important skill
0: isn't it almost an interpreter role between the intellectual pursuit and that area of that deep expertise and specialization and then the ability to tell a story in a way that is moving and compelling to a public at large.
1: Absolutely.
0: I would guess also to your point that the value of the PhD and that expertise that is acquired over time is, is also, I, I think perhaps also the ability, even when speaking to the public at large, to be able to speak in an intellectual language and speak to that depth, sometimes without concern for the translation into that late, quote unquote, lay person speak or everyday language. Um, I don't know, you know, there's this, uh, de- I don't know if it's a debate, but there's this running commentary about the, and I even hate to, to, to quote it, but this idea of the, quote unquote, dumbing down of America. Mm-hmm. That we're constantly simplifying everything and we're starting to lose nuance and depth. And um,
1: I think that that's what I'm speaking to, Michelle. I think that I, I like I said, maybe you don't need a um, a Ph.D. to become a curator. Certainly, you can learn a lot by experience. But honestly, when you're re- researching something, I just think it's good to leave most of the stones turned, you know, like keep, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you got to keep going and going because inevitably you're you're the one responsible and what if you what if somebody has a question about something a little bit off topic but tangential i mean and maybe because i'm a folklorist by training we go off on tangents all the time (laughs) (laughs) for me it's like it's all about understanding the context and i think the more of the context that you grasp as a curator i think that that's invaluable and 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 i am so against dumbing down for america i think everybody can handle um more information, you know, and if they, can't inf- if they can't handle all the information, people intuitively stop and they'll move on to the next picture or, or diorama or whatever it is that's in the museum. That is such a good point. There's this, even the assumption that we
0: need to simplify and dumb down, quote unquote, that, that,
1: that's probably not... Well, you know, it's for me, like, my, my rule of thumb is, or the way I, I grew up on, and, you know, it was was Bugs Bunny. As a kid, <laughs> I loved it, because it was kind of slapstick, and then as, as I got older, there were so many levels to yes. Bugs Bunny. Like, he spoke to adults. They So there's, it, it looks like it's just a stupid cartoon, but really it wasn't, and it was very, it wasn't that it was deep, but it, it entertained people in all levels. And it just depended at what you're com- what age you're coming into and how much information, how much you enjoyed the show. And I think that's the same way with any museum. Sure, you know, we want to hook our kids into it. We want to get them interested in the classics, you know. Mm-hmm. I haven't been to the Matisse exhibit, but I'm, I'm looking forward to getting there. But I assume, first of all, just the way it looks, kids are going to love the colors. Right. Oh, is this the cutout
0: exhibit yeah. at MoMA?
1: Right, right. But then, you know, for me, I actually love reading all the panels now. I think as a kid, I probably didn't. I think I just looked at the pretty pictures, but I was hooked in in that way because I got the opportunity to see it. Yeah, that's
0: a That's an excellent point. And that's actually like talk about, you know, tangent, but all good animated movies, even today, if you think about it. Yep. uh, Bugs Bunny was the the forerunner, but uh, they entertained at all levels.
1: Absolutely, they do. Mm -hmm. You know, like I haven't seen um, any of the latest Japanese ones, but certainly the one about the young woman in Iran. I'm blanking on the name. You know, it's an animated story of what it was to be an outspoken girl in Iran, and she had to leave. You know, graphically, it's just a very pretty thing, you know, and Mm -hmm. as you're older, you know, my husband and I enjoyed it. I don't usually watch anime, but the story was so gripping. But again, you know, it comes at you at a certain level, and I think that all ages can enjoy it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. The other thing is um, the value of a PhD in the, I would assume, a museum context or curator context is that's also, I think, one of the few, well, I don't want to say few, but it's certainly one of those uh, areas of uh, work where a PhD gives you, I would imagine, some respect and perhaps leverage, bargaining leverage for negotiations for salary and title that probably, that, that just don't exist in other areas of work. I, I, I would almost expect that in order to be competitive at some level for programming roles in museums, you would need a PhD. Is that true?
1: I, I honestly don't know. I mean, certainly at the museum in Eldridge Street's a little different because we the the show is really the museum, so I don't have to. Um, I don't curate um, those kinds of things. I curate the public programs. So um, I don't think the PhD sadly has much to do with salary in the <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to tell you. I'm going to be honest, people. That doesn't do it. But what does? Um, I think that it. Um, it does. Is it certainly gives you a, a level of confidence, saying that you know what I know. I know more about this part of the the job. Mm. Never, but but I will tell you, it's a funny joke. One my um, brother and his wife are in the medical world. They do not have their PhDs. There, <clears throat> and they were in Switzerland for many years, and they came back and um, getting new jobs. <laughs> and they said something about well, you and your PhD, you know, you probably get a lot more money. And I cracked up and I said, no, sadly, um, the m- more letters you have after your name, the less you get paid. <laughs> and I don't know if other people have found that way in the public sector, but it certainly is true in my world. It doesn't, what, what does matter in my world is certainly how much experience you have, but I can't honestly say that the PhD has gotten me more money. Well, that's, that's good to know.
0: Um, I, I would, in my experience, it has not in in the private sector, it has not been very effective as a salary negotiation tool either. Mm. Um, but I, I think that, you know, as always, experience trumps. Yes. Everyone's looking for skills and experience. Uh, so that's that's good to know. I thought maybe the museum world would be an exception
1: to that, but no museum world <laughs> Let me just tell you, Alyssa, that it doesn't pay well. <laughs> Um, but you certainly have a lot of job satisfaction in, in other ways. Oh, well, so this is
0: interesting because the PhD, then the only value, like, I sound so polemic when I hear myself saying these things. But so, uh, you know, her original question was, I'm thinking about, I'm going to go into this PhD program. I want to work in public programs and museums. The PhD, then the only value it's going to serve long term is the intellectual depths that that knowledge pursuit provides, and it's not necessarily going to help her, A, get the job, B, be good at, well, maybe be good at the job, but it's not going to help her get the job or negotiate a salary. Is that a fair
1: statement? I think so. I think for me, and I don't know about for you, Michelle, but for me, getting the PhD was the biggest gift to myself. Mm. I mean, for me, when I graduated with a BA in um, American Studies and French, I I just thought, like, I, I still didn't know enough. I didn't, you know, I took out two years. I did sort different sorts of jobs, and I kept thinking, I need to go back to school. I'm just not satisfied. Ooh. And then I found Folklore and American Studies at Indiana, and I just loved it. You know, it's not an easy road, as you know. It's long. It can be tedious. But I really, really enjoyed the whole process of my intellectual growth and i think that the phd is for people like that i i think like i said i think that you can become a curator without a phd um you know as long as you're you've been lucky enough or or smart enough to get yourself internships and work and make the connections i think there's can enough cannot be said about networking and connections that's certainly with any job you got to get out there and get yourself known um but for me, I, I would say to people: if you really love learning and you really love your field, go and get your PhD because it's it's a it's a wonderful thing, and no one can take it away from you. I mean, sound very romantic about it, and I, <laughs> <laughs> just a little bit, <laughs> just a little bit. But on but it's true. If you're looking for jobs, you know, and, and money, that's a whole other route to take. PhDs, because we're where you do. You're isolated for a number of years. You're with all these people that think the way you do about a very small section of the world (laughs) or academia. Um, But I don't think that, uh, um, anyway, that's the way I I took it. I I always did think I would teach, and then it became clear after a couple of years in grad school that the job market was really not the same as it was. Although I have to tell you, I studied the life histories of retired professors So you should have known. <laughs> oh, and I keep telling people, you know what? It was never easy to get a job in academia. A lot of it really never was. A lot of it happened by happenstance or someone knew somebody to get that foot in the door. And it's even harder now. Um, but it was never an easy job, so I, like, I, I was perfectly placed in where I was that I could have one foot in what we call the public sector and one in the academy. And I'm sort of doing that now, but now I'm more, you know, I work more at the museum and I teach one class a year.
0: Right, right.
1: So you've it's, you sort of found
0: your balance and you've, you've yeah. been able to maintain it, even as, you know, if you think about it, just you naturally shift weight between feet when you're standing still anyway, exactly um and that's well that's not really standing still is it it's you're you're always moving and shifting
1: yeah (laughs) that's
0: what's going on yeah I um I don't had I did not have that same um I always viewed it as job training Mm
1: -hmm. um so
0: I didn't have that same uh which is it's a lovely I I love I mean it's so nice to hear when people say oh I just I love the intellectual pursuit of it that's a It's a very nice thing to hear. I I I didn't feel that way about it. (laughs) It was definitely job training in my mind, um, and I've always been very practical. And um, you know, I think also I think there are real financial considerations, and especially for you know, I put myself through school and was always self-supporting. So, um, yeah, I think for for me, regardless of how I felt about. Um, how much I knew, Uh, yeah, I wish I had more, you know, awareness of the financial ramifications of what that pursuit of the PhD meant. But that said, I had, you know, similar to you, I had extraordinary experiences, truly one of a kind uh, that I never would have, you know, and I lived in many countries, and I wouldn't have had those opportunities. Uh, Well, I don't know, but I likely would not have had those same kind of opportunities. Had I did not pursued the PhD, it's so tough. Once you've gone through it and you've come through the other side, it—it's so basic to your formation. You know, it becomes part of your formation and who you are. So, it's hard to imagine life without it, isn't it?
1: It is hard. You know, it's funny. i, I don't know why. I must have been thinking about this podcast this weekend, and I was thinking, you know, for six years. You know, for my twenties and early thirties, I basically lived in tiny little places, funky. Um, you know, and, uh, a big expense for me was going to the movies, you know, or something like you, you learn to live a very frugal life and, it, you know, it, it, it didn't bother me cause I was busy most of the time, whether I was writing my dissertation or just starting, you know, my first job or whatever it was, it's, it's not quite being a monk, but you do live to, you cannot want things. You know, if you want be, that, <laughs> that is it's so true. You know what I mean, and it's funny. I've got lots of tchotchkes. That's part of my my thing. But but you, but but that's different than wanting a, a new car. You know, that's different than wanting to, um, you know, needing five pairs of boots or whatever. It's it's a whole different way of looking at your life. And and um, and I could do it. You know, I mm-hmm. was always hoping that I would have a full time job. But I think I wrote in my podcast I was. Never going to be a full-time lecturer at uh, Grinnell College, and um, they get—I want to say—I mean, they get—they get paid real money,
0: yeah. And
1: I did not get real paid money, and it's a small school, and I had lots of great friends, and they were getting their new cars, and I was driving my Chevette you know, <laughs> <laughs> that I bought off my friend's father, and it was fine. But um, you know, I—I I, I was comfortable there, but my, the, the chair of my department, when this job in Japan came up, and he goes take it, Hmm. just take it. And I, and I was, of course, it was like, I I had no training in Japanese culture. I, it was furthest from my mind, but I took it mainly because the, the chair of my department in Japan was this Texan. When he called me up for an interview, I liked him immediately. And I trusted him that this place would be a good for me. Yeah. as well. And then when I started earning real money, I was like, oh my God, look what I've been This is what my (laughs) friends have been able to do for years. And I'm just coming into this at 35, you know,
0: (laughs) it's revelatory, isn't it?
1: It's revelatory. And, and it's a great thing. Um, but you know, but while you're doing it, I mean, like I said, I keep going back to getting a PhD certainly is not for everybody, but for me, it worked for, it, it worked until I finished, you know, and then I needed a find what I could do with that job because, um, let's face it, I I honestly don't know any PhD that's, I used to joke, I'm going to be the first millionaire PhD person. (laughs) But I, you know, and I almost did it if I'd stayed in Japan, you know, (laughs) I paid really nice money.
0: Well, um, Barbie Decker is a millionaire. She's one of our guest bloggers.
1: Oh, she is. Yes.
0: She left the academy. She uh, is now a business development. She's in the health and personal fitness realm, and she's a self-made millionaire.
1: Wow. That's great. So it can be done. It can be done.
0: It can be done. Good luck, hard work, right opportunity, more Mm -hmm. hard work. It certainly can be done. Though I think also there's something that you mentioned, which was this, you know, this opportunity came up to go to Japan and Everyone around you was saying, "Take it," and you took it and I think and when you tell the story, you tell it, and it's funny and you know there's this text in Japan, but really you you got up and went um, for a job that, in theory had very little immediate relevancy to your training. You just went for it and had the courage to get up and go and, and just seize an opportunity, any opportunity now i 'm not saying. I'm sure there were other opportunities you turned down, but I mean that was that was that's courage.
1: You know, it's funny. Um, I never thought of it as courageous. I'll never forget the summer um, after that first semester in Japan. I was back in Waltham visiting my father and my friends, and I'm showing pictures of people, and I said, "People keep thinking I'm courageous," and um, for me, I was just thinking, "Okay, it's a job. It pays money." Like. <laughs> I, I was thinking, that's all it was. And my friends looked at me and they go, Hannah, that was courageous. We would never even, it would never have entered our heads to even consider the job. Yeah. And I looked at them, I went, wow. Okay, because I was just thinking again, I, ne- I had loans to pay, I needed to. I needed a job. Yeah. So um, uh, there I went. I did have a friend from graduate school who did make studied Japanese religions and was there in Tokyo, which was pretty far from where I was. And I called him and I said, you think I can do it? And he goes, yeah, you can do it. He said, it's not as easy being a woman in Japan as a guy. It's, you know, um, women aren't, aren't respected as much. But he, he knew, he checked into the university and he said, it's legitimate and you can do it. Mm-hmm. So, um, so there I went. You know, And I just remember thinking I was so busy with, because I defended my dissertation and then I had a month to get ready to go to Japan. So I was too preoccupied to really freak out. <laughs> and then I had flown to Seattle to see friends on my way there and I was walking with my friend Roz and I said, I am freaking out right now. And she said, well, it's a little late. <laughs> I said, I know, I'm going to Japan. Um, but uh, I like I said, John, my boss, I knew he would be waiting for me at the train station when I got off the train from Japan, uh, Tokyo. And there he was, and I liked him immediately. And he and his wife were a great little way station. And um, and just I think my nature is very curious. And once I was there, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be here for a while. Um,
0: and I was. It's such a great story. Yeah. So uh, the other point that about that is you know, that when when someone is transitioning from uh, academia to public or private sector, that first job is so critical. You just need that first moment of experience. Mm-hmm. And accepting that offer in Japan, happily it worked out um, and you were happy there. But even if you hadn't been, right, that would have been a really critical moment because you would have had important experience on your resume and it would have been a, an important building step stepping stone towards that next opportunity which I would assume that when you came back and you were looking for work back here in the U.S. that people would raise their eyebrows and were interested to know more and that gave you much more credibility. Is that a fair statement?
1: You know it's funny yes and no I think they were impressed and everything but I have to say it seems to me that A lot of American companies and academia, they don't respect the the, abroad experience as much as you would expect. Mm. Sadly, I didn't learn my Japanese like I should have. I could not, I could learn, I learned enough to understand people to, you know, to do things. I learned to get what I needed, but I can't say that I, I did. I didn't really learn Japanese. So that to put me in a um, to go into a world worth Japanese banking or business, which is very key. I couldn't do that. Mm. I could I could explain to them culturally what one should do, but they didn't seem interested in that. So, okay. <laughs> um, so that was a little bit hard. But you know, ironically, I came back to Waltham, um, and my uh, a cousin of mine. I was at some family thing, and she said, "You know what?" we need people to teach ESL at the school in Belmont. You know, maybe you could get a job. And it, so I took it. Again, it was, you know, maybe below. It was working in the elementary schools. But it was a stepping stone, and I certainly met people I needed to meet, and I was employed. Yes. You know, um, and I worked it. And I was there for about six months, and then I got this job in Mississippi. Right. Sometimes you got to do what you got to do. That's just, yeah. that's just
0: the way it rolls. And. For those who are looking at you and your career and thinking, that's the job I want, I'm going to follow her path exactly, it's also a great
1: reminder that no career path is a straight line. Absolutely. I don't know anybody in my world that has gone straight through. Um, And I think that you shouldn't, I mean, I I, I think that's one of my my philosophies is that you got to take a, you know, for me, it was always about, I have to support myself, so I can do this job. Maybe it's not that I'm going to be here forever, but I'm going to do it and learn something from it. And I did.
0: Yeah. Always look for something to take away. There's always something to learn. Absolutely. Awesome. Okay, let's take a let's uh, take the second question. Hi Hannah, thanks for answering our questions. I was wondering, what's something that really
1: excites you about your job?
0: And is there something that you love doing that you wish you could do
1: more of? Thank you. Um the job I have now, I mean, what I when I get to do just what I I should be doing is what I love the most. And that's putting together um, concerts for the museum um, and other public programs. So right now, the museum in Eldridge Street, um, you know, we're an old Eastern European synagogue on the Lower East Side. And the music that I put together for people is... Um, Music that has some sort of either Eastern European or immigrant theme to it that really seems to fit the neighborhood or the synagogue itself, and I love working with these musicians. Um, when I started at at Grinnell, I mean at Grinnell, <laughs> when I started <laughs> at Eldred Street. I honestly didn't know that much about um, Jewish music. Funny enough, I had been, you know, I'd been in D- at Indiana learning a lot about bluegrass and country music, and. Klezmer had sort of, i um, sort of missed that. I, I I knew what it was, but I didn't know a whole lot about it. And then I came to New York, and when I worked for the State Arts Council, we um, only had a few groups that came to us for funding for Jewish music. So I, that's where I started. But I have to say, Eldred Street gave me the opportunity to really explore all this stuff. And I think that the audience has benefited from my learning about it and presenting newer versions of it. And no one concert sounds like the other, which is what I love. And, um, and then also we don't do as many literary programs anymore. Um, I, we used to do more of them and I really enjoyed that working with new novelists, um, writers, short story people and, and having conversations with them. And, um, we're slowly getting them back a little bit, um, which is fun for me um, as well because certainly I love to read. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I love writers. I worship them. So it's fun to have them back.
0: Is that uh, decline in literary programming a result of public reception or attendance or was it a decision made among leadership? What, I guess what, um, what determines the directions you take in your public programming?
1: A lot of it is money and audience reception. So when we used to, we used to have a little bit of funding for these um, literary events. And um, because we charge for them, I think, A, and B, we were still struggling to find our own identity. We weren't getting more than 10, 15 people for the literary programs. Mm. And, um, and we just, you know, it was a hard decision, but we just decided to pull the plug. I mean, it wasn't worth it for me to stay late um, on a, in an evening event or close the museum a little, or when we have public programs that usually on Sunday at three, that means we don't get museum people in. So to do that and to only have 10 people in the audience didn't really seem worth it. Right. So, um, we stopped for a while and then, um, we started doing book launches, which is really no, we didn't have to pay people. They come in and we, hopefully we sell their books and I have to say, in the last three years, it's worked really well, and we've been getting more and more people in the door, so it isn't quite a whole literary discussion, but we have them talk a bit and um about their book and it's and it works for everybody i mean my my husband's in the publishing business, so of course, I love selling books <laughs> you know never never a little bit can help the biz be happy as well as him and his world, but also I think i mean I do. Any kind of artist, writer, uh, musician, I love helping push their products. You know, I certainly get where they're coming from.
0: Yeah. That's
1: an important reminder
0: also for, you know, those who are listening who think they're going into the public sector and, um, you know, it's all, about, um, it's all about the work and the art. And the fact of the matter is, there is a, still a business mm-hmm. that has to be run. And these considerations are important and have an impact on decisions around programming and what's presented and what isn't. And and so there's value in understanding how all of those elements come together and impact final decision.
1: Absolutely, Michelle. And to add to that, you know, you don't just get to do your, you know, the job you think you were hired for, that is public program director. Yes, I get to do that, but you're part of a whole team. And sometimes I'm the cashier, sometimes I'm the intern, you know, sometimes, you know, like I do it all. I do my own Xeroxing. I do the, um, something needs to be cleaned if I notice for whatever reason the custodian isn't there. I clean the kitchen. I clean the floor sometimes, you know, like whatever has to be done. You can't be too proud. Mm. You got to do it as well as I think, um, you know, uh, and the programs that I do depend, you know, we need money for it. So I work with the development director and by telling her, um, this is what I want to do this season. Do we have money for it? Is there a grant to go for? It? And I mean, I give her the details. I have to say, she's great. Eva Brunei. she writes the grants, but we work, um, she works with every staff member, you know, getting money for our positions to help us out. So there's a big, you're, you're, you're working a lot with different kinds of people. Would you share
0: with us uh, a sense of what all of those different roles are? So if someone's interested in working at a museum, there's opportunities around program director for public programs, but there are also many other um, staff members with responsibilities. Would you give us just a, just a quick snapshot of what those look like and how they all interact together?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's the education director who works mostly with school kids, um, and she and I don't often interact together, but we we support each other. You know, she she helps out. You know, she's my intern in many ways in the program. We joke when we help when someone has a program. Um, you, someone's got to set up the food. You got to do that kind of stuff. Um, the education director actually brings in a lot of the school kids from the neighborhood. She works really hard at designing public school programs, um, and. Again, like I said, I don't maybe work with her, but if she has a big program on a Sunday, whether I take up her slack and do the tours for her, um, Mm. that's what I do. Sometimes I'm making challah. (laughs) (laughs) I have have no artsy background at all, but I can bake. So if there's a food demo, I'm usually there. Um, For the deputy director, she and I actually work the closest together because she's also the marketing director. And we talk a, a lot about how we can sell my programs. You know, we work a lot designing the you know the blog posts for them, the posters. Um, I really depend on her a lot to help me shape the nature of the program as well, so we can market it best and what's best for the um, the museum. And I think the executive di- director definitely depends on all of us to help make the mich- you know us run smoothly. Mm-hmm. You know, we're we're a staff of I think seven full time people, so we all have to work together to make it work yeah
0: I think also your point earlier about you have to be prepared to do every every job you have to be prepared to make the copies clean the kitchen clean, you know if something's dirty clean it that also speaks to working in a smaller organization mm-hmm. regardless of whether it's public or private in the private sector that would be the startup space in the public sector smaller organization when you're a smaller team that I would imagine, you know, the collaborative nature is paramount and everyone chips in.
1: Right. Absolutely. I mean, they can't work. If they, if you can't be a prima donna. If it is, there's a lot of resentment. So that better not happen. <laughs> <laughs> not happen. I just remember years ago, before we could afford a custodian, I was, it was before an event and I was sweeping the sidewalk and one of our docents came and said, Hannah, what are you doing? And I said, I got a, I have a program. I don't want people to see trash. And she was kind of horrified to see me doing it. And I was like, I, I don't. I said, well, someone's got to do it, and it's my program, so I'm doing it. and um she just didn't get it and i was thinking where are you from i mean i don't know where she worked i mean i'm sure i would have loved a custodian then but we didn't have one so that's the story
0: (laughs) it's a good story (laughs) it also speaks you gotta own it right if it's your if it's your product if it's your program if it's your whatever it is take responsibility end to end you're responsible for its success in every in every capacity
1: Absolutely. And I will say since I've been there, I mean, we don't have a whole lot of money, but it doesn't cost much money to serve a little wine, to serve a little nosh. And everybody, you know, I know my people, it's mostly older people that come and they expect something. Mm-hmm. And so people tease me and for a while there was no budget for it. Somehow I snuck it back in and it's like, you know what, for me, I know who the public is. I know what looks right, what, how a program supposed to look like to these people. And I want I want the Lil Mosh. And now we take little donations. I've gone enough to other places that's like, put a buck in. And actually, that helps. That, it pays for itself. That's great, though. And also, you have to know your audience. You yep. have to know your audience.
0: This has been really great, Hannah. Thank you. Do you have any, is there anything we didn't cover or didn't talk about that you wanted to add? Or anything in specific that you wanted to share with our audience? I
1: think. I think not. I think I've pretty much said it all and I've written it all. It's just that, you know, when you, having a PhD is a great thing. It's not a liability at all. I think it becomes a liability when you can't be flexible. I have seen a lot of my friends from graduate school, like all they want to do is teach. They have four and five jobs. They schlep all around the state or the city teaching because they can't seem to fit themselves into someplace else. And I don't know if it's stubbornness or they're so disappointed that their PhD didn't work for them, and they're so anti academic now. And I'm thinking, you know, I don't get it. I I just don't get it. Like, you know, you were we went we we went to the same place. We understand that this was what was going to happen. And for me, it's like, you're, you're getting a PhD in folklore, you better be flexible. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember the, the look on my parents' face when I told them I was going to get a graduate school degree in folklore, and they're like, oh, you know, but after a few years, my father said to me, sadly, my mother passed away before she saw me be, actually, she saw my, get my name as a professor now and that was great but my father said i have to say you know you you never not had a job that's something and um and i never did because i was like okay yes i want to teach but uh, you know you don't there, there's all different kinds of teaching like doing my public programs is a way of teaching the public about their culture mm-hmm. that's the way i view it. and that's how i get really into the music and the artists and what they're where they're learning from and somehow and we 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 make sure that the audience understands that you know that they that musicians just don't come and play right they work really hard at creating a program for us and they've done lots of research on the music where they learned it and and giving it back to our culture so that part of it pleases me and i wish i can impart that to other people that wherever you whatever your field is so you're not going to be in the academy there are other ways to appreciate it and that's your that's your mission.
0: Well said. That was great. Well said. Well said. Thank you so much, Hannah. My pleasure. Thank you so much to our guest, Hannah Griff Slevin, for joining us and to you, members of our network, for listening. As 2014 draws to a close, I want to take a minute to wish you and yours best wishes for the holidays and the start of the new year. I think it's going to be a great one for all of us. And if, with the new year, you are interested in making a professional change, I also want to let you know that there are new job postings listed on our website from Hanover Research. Hanover Research specifically recruits individuals with PhD training to perform both qualitative and quantitative research, so if you're looking for something new, be sure to check them out. I also want to let you know that with the new year, I'll be making some changes to our newsletter including the addition of special content reserved exclusively for subscribing members. If you're interested in learning more, be sure to sign up. It's free to join. All of that information, the latest job postings by Hanover Research, and the link to sign up for our newsletter can be found on our website, phdsatwork.com. Thanks again, everyone. Have a great holiday,
1: and we'll see you here next time.